live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed, by some, to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. And that was our guest, Benjamin Dreyer, reading the first paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, our book for today. So in The Haunting of Hill House, Dr. Montague, a researcher into the paranormal, invites three strangers to come and stay with him in a famous haunted house to study what occurs. Among his guests are the glamorous and cat-like Theo, handsome bad boy Luke, and our heroine Eleanor Vance, a lonely, awkward young woman who was invited because of a poltergeist event in her childhood. Eleanor has spent her entire adult life nursing her mother. She lives with her sister, now whom she hates, and until now she has had no friends. So it's only natural that she sees this as the great event and opportunity of her life. Benjamin Dreyer, our guest for today, um, is the author of Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style, and of the upcoming Dreyer's Fiction. He's the copy chief at Random House, and as we, we're going to be hearing, he copy edited a book of short stories of Shirley Jackson's that's just come out. Um, and he's a great and somewhat famous Shirley Jackson fan. Okay, so I want to start us off by asking Benjamin, and I'm just going to preface this by saying that I actually, I was very disappointed to see at the time that we I was rereading Hill House, a conversation on Twitter between people who were saying that they considered that Shirley Jackson was now overrated, having been underrated, which I disagree with profoundly, and saying the usual sort of things, oh, well, but it's not a masterpiece, but she's not a genius, but this, but that. And, and I wonder, what, what is it that draws people to want to say this kind of thing about Shirley Jackson? Why is she underrated in this way? You know, I, I think of Shirley as one of the great prose stylists of American literature of the 20th century, but I have always seen the pushback against her reputation. Um, I do certainly remember that when the Library of America did their big one volume of Shirley, that I can't remember what critic it was, and perhaps it's better that I don't remember his name, and of course it was a man, um, <laughs> who said that, you know, by enshrining Shirley Jackson in the Library of America, the Library of America had basically flushed itself down the toilet. Um <laughs> I mean, she's a wonderful writer that she made her living um, dipping into the supernatural because, of course, everything she wrote was not supernatural, though those are the things that we those are the things that we think of. Mm -hmm. Certainly that she made her living writing for the ladies magazines uh, like, you know, Red Book and Good Housekeeping and the Ladies Home Journal, that she was a domestic memoirist, um, you know, writing Raising Demons and Life Among the Savages. All of that, I think, adds up to the kind of pigeonholing that many 
female writers get, um, uh, you know, are on the re- on the receiving end of. Um, you know, I've, I, I've had this idea for a, a very long time that the great male writers of the 20th century uh, are always viewed as writing of the universal experience, whereas the way I read them, because I'm I'm not a, a straight white Christian male, well, of course, some of them are Jewish and, and most of them are straight, um, but to me, the things that they're writing about I mean, that's genre fiction. The genre mm-hmm. is straight men. Um, and, and, and everybody pigeonholes the, the female writers into, oh, they're, they're writing domestic fiction or they're writing things that are largely of interest to women. I, I think that the things that writers like Shirley write, I, I, think, those are, I think that those are universal themes. And, and one of the things that I, I do particularly like about Shirley, as I've often liked it about uh, a, a lot of the women writers I read, is that they are purer storytellers. They're not writing with an agenda, not, I mean, not always. They're writing to tell stories, and, and they do it, the best ones do it brilliantly. That is, uh, that's really interesting. And I, I remember, I've just been reading um, the recent biography of Shirley Jackson by Ruth Franklin. Now the, the name of it is escaping me for some reason. But she says in that, that um, Stanley Hyman, uh, Shirley's husband, said of Shirley that she had no idea what she was doing. She could just sit down and stories would flow out of her. Uh, which seems a little dismissive on the one hand, but also, also kind of true. Well, the um, so the essay in the New Yorker, uh, Garlic in Fiction, um, where she writes about the craft that she's using in um, the Haunting of Hill House, specifically in the introduction, the first chapters take um, this character Eleanor from a very realistic part of life it's like a sort of familiar city life that she's living where she's it's um it's not the kind of place where you'd expect to find a haunted house and then it takes her to a haunted house um and jackson describes the process uh, by which she leads the reader and eleanor into the kind of suggestible state where a haunted house would seem like a natural part of the landscape. And um, it's a series of symbols that she uses and then uh, changes their meaning slightly. um, So that there's this sense of um, that that the world can be imbued with meaning, that there can be... um, uh, that, that objects could have uh, thoughts almost, that the, the house could have um, a purpose of its own that's, that's you know, not the same as city buildings. Um, and I was thinking, reading her essay about, um, about creating that storytelling, that, that I'd had this experience of the story as though I had constructed the meaning myself, not that she had done it to me. Hmm. Um, and then reading how she had just completely constructed it, um, everything that I thought that I had sort of, you know, figured out about this landscape was actually something that she just put there for me to find. Um, I know that that's 
how writing works. I, I, you know, I know that everything in the book is something that the author put there, but she's talking about how to make the book feel like a place that you could feel like you're finding something on your own. Um, like it might have secrets, even from herself, the author, for you, the reader, to find. And I was thinking, she's the haunted house. That that really, like that idea of how much she's controlling the reader's experience of the story and how much that's her goal. The things that Benjamin was saying are seen as more kind of uh, central, universal, maybe respectable, and why this seems potentially more of a genre thing when people are going to be dismissive of genre things. I think some of it has to do with just how tight her storytelling is. I mean, I think that one of the things, I mean, one of the things I find interesting about, um, about Shirley's essays on craft um, is that particularly from having worked so intimately uh, copy editing her material when we did the book that Random House published a few years ago, as let me tell you, is that I think that Shirley was very good at shaping her reality to tell stories the way she wanted to tell them, uh, whether it was in her fiction or in, in her nonfiction. And I, I think that, I, I wonder whether or not sometimes you do have to take the things that she says with a bit of a grain of salt. I mean, for instance, one of the things that Ruth Franklin talks about in the biography is that the story that Shirley always liked to tell, and, and she has a whole lecture built around uh, writing the lottery and what happened after it was published, but that she loves to tell the story about how she went for a walk one day, that the idea of the lottery popped into her head, that she sat down, she wrote the story, um, she sent it to the New Yorker, you know, after its first draft, and it was published more or less exactly the way she wrote it in the first place. And and one of the things that Ruth says in the book is, well, that, you know, that's hogwash. Um, it, it didn't happen that way, but it makes the story better. Um, mm -hmm. As for instance, I remember encountering in, in, in copy editing some of her essays, she tells two very separate stories about um, being haunted by automatic writing. And they're two completely different stories, but they are basically the same story. And you think she, she had this idea to tell this story of her life, of her creative process, and she was going to figure out how to use it the way she wanted to use it. So in, in Garlic and Fiction, the account that she tells of getting Eleanor from uh, New York City, which is by the way, I mean, it's an interesting detail. I was just realizing it when I was uh, rereading uh, re the essay that in Hill House, she never says where Eleanor lives and she doesn't say where Hill House is either. Uh, but she does specifically say in Garlic and Fiction that Eleanor lives in New York City, which mm -hmm. means that Hill House is presumably in Massachusetts, though it could be in Pennsylvania. Um but anyway, in telling in, 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 in telling how she gets Eleanor from New York City to Hill House by means of what she refers to as the symbols, the woman that Eleanor collides with uh, when she's on her way to get her car and knocks the woman down and, and knocks her groceries over, um, the 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 house that she passes by with the tunes with the two stone lions that eventually becomes part of Eleanor's own narrative of 
where she lives, this whole fantasy that she builds to present to the other characters of what her life is. Um, I mean, I think that it is entirely possible that Shirley did with great precision and intention get Eleanor from New York City to Hill House by means of these symbols that make that, that, that take the book from a place of reality to a place of non-reality. I suppose it's also possibly the case that, you know, that Shirley just sort of sat down and wrote it and then retrofitted, um, you know, that the essay that the essay comes out of the novel as opposed to uh, I'm sorry let me let me say that more clearly that she that she imposed a creative narrative of of will and intention where perhaps there wasn't one but the thing is um, she told the story the way she wanted to tell it and that's the version of the story that we have and and I think that writers do that all the time um, when they're when they are writing nonfiction it's like well. This is the way it happened, but I need to give it a little bit more shape to make it work. But in any event, what she's doing is is it's ingenious. So however it happened, it works. I, I wanted to ask both of you, actually, what you think about how hostile she is to the reader in that Garlic and Fiction essay, that she considers the reader to be her enemy because the reader is trying to not pay attention and she needs to force the reader to think what she, I mean, this is, this is how she, she phrases it. And that was kind of what made me think that she herself was the haunted house that walks alone in the book. Um, mm-hmm. The way that the, the house is almost creating a narrative for the, for the people inside it to act out. Um, that sense of hostility toward the reader do you think that she actually feels that way? Or do you think that she's putting this on as like a, a dramatic position that she can use to explain her process? Well, I'll, I'll answer first, just briefly. I think, I think she's just objectively correct that the reader is the enemy of the writer. Um, <laughs> and I always tell my students, <laughs> you know, you, your aim is to defeat the extraordinary stupidity of the reader. That's not true for um, podcast listeners, though. No, no, podcast listeners are a different breed altogether. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I just, I just identified with all of that completely. But I also think it's sort of interesting. I mean, coming from what we were saying originally about fiction that's in the genre of straight white Christian men, and fiction that's, I guess you could also call it a genre, the, the genre of women is that, in my experience, female fiction and female writing tends to be full of a lot of rage. And there's always this sense of finding ways of dressing the rage up and making it charming to the reader. And I think that essay is actually an example of that. While she's also talking about defeating the reader, she's defeating the reader by dressing this up as a joke, when in fact she probably feels a lot of genuine and real hostility. That's really, I mean, that's really interesting that you say that. And I, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. My, only, my, my particular response when I was rereading um, the essay uh, just this morning in preparation for this conversation was that that conceit of the uh, of the reader lying in a hammock with a glass of iced tea and five possible things to read and 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 an almost uh, uh, a built in desire to not read any of them. <laughs> My initial reaction when I was reading that was, well, that's a bit of that's a bit of a conceit, and I'm not sure that I buy it. But you have just expressed it in a way that makes me 
believe it a little bit more than I did when I uh, than, than I did when I just when I just read it. But um, the the result surely is that, and, and again, it is one of the uh, it's it's one of the things that I like about uh, it's one of the things that I like about her writing is that there's a lot of great writing that doesn't ping and bang and bop and grab. Um, and, and, and you just, you make your way through it. And as time goes by, you appreciate its quality and it does the thing that it's doing. But one of the things about her writing is it's so engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows how to like write a sentence. She knows how to, you know, grab you by the lapels and make sure that you keep reading. She's, she's extraordinarily good at that. That is absolutely true. Um, and actually, while we're while we're talking just about how great she is, do you want to do you want to tell us like your trajectory of finding Shirley? Sure, 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 sure. I mean, the thing is, I am I am reasonably certain that my first encounter with Shirley was the same as everybody's encounter with Shirley, which was reading the lottery in some anthology of short stories in in high school. I mean that 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 must have been it. Um, and, and, and certainly that's part of the reason why um, I'm always disappointed when a short story doesn't have a twist ending. I think <laughs> that, you know, short stories should have twist endings every single time. It works so well. Um, no doubt I found my way to Shirley Beyond the Lottery by seeing Robert Wise's film of The Haunting mm-hmm. um, and then went backward to read The Haunting of Hill House and then that certainly led me over time to then simply devour everything of hers I could get my hands on. Uh, I mean, obviously, I then went to We Have Always Lived in the Castle, uh, but I found my way to the Sundial and the Bird's Nest, which is one of my favorite of her. Uh, one of my favorite of her books. It's it's you know it's it's not one of the the A list titles, but it's it's awfully good. That's her novel about multiple personality disorder. Um, you know, and then finding the short stories, finding the collections of previously unpublished short stories. Um, you know, uh, just another ordinary day. I think that's the title of the first of the, uh, of the of the first of the two volumes that two of her children put together. Um, funnily enough, it was published by the imprint that I now work for before I worked for it. If you if, if you if you follow me, yeah, uh, but. I just, you know, I'm always looking for, you know, additional scraps of her stuff uh, because, you know, I've, I've, I've read, I've read it all by now. Um, but yeah, I just, I have, I, I am always reading her. I have always been reading her. She's, she's always nearby. There were, you know, there was a time for years when I was always reading and rereading the short stories because there, there's so much you can learn uh, from them. And I, I do remember I embarked on the experiment once where I thought to retype one of her short stories. Mm. I think it was The Renegade. Um, because I, I wondered whether or not in retyping it from beginning to end, I might learn more. Uh, and, and I found to my delight that when you do that, and, and, uh, uh, and I think it's a very good thing, I think it's a very good thing to do. I, I've suggested it as an uh, exercise. Uh, to, to young writers that when you actually recreate uh, somebody else's writing, when you have to do it 
slower than you would if you were reading it. Um, it almost rises up off the page into your hands and then up into your head. And you learn a lot uh, about how, how the writer does what the writer does. So what, um, what was your experience with actually copy editing her work? Because, because you have actually, you've written for um, The Toast about the experience of being the first copy editor of some of her unpublished stories, now published. Um, will you tell us about that? Sure. Well, I mean, it was it, it, it was fascinating, and and maybe I had held in my head, you know, before, uh, you know, a fantasy of what it would be like, to, you know, to to meet her or to 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 to, to collaborate with her on uh, on her work. In fact, I, I I do have a distinct recollection of reading the first of her published novels, if I'm not mistaken, "The Road Through the Wall," mm-hmm. and thinking because there's a lot about it that I like, and there's a lot about it that I don't particularly care for. Uh, and I thought, if I could just copy edit, I, I could I could shake it, <laughs> I could shake it loose a little bit. Um, but I found out that that Random House had acquired this collection of previously either uncollected or entirely unpublished material uh, by Shirley, which, by the way, was originally going to be called Garlic in Fiction uh, before mm-hmm. it ended up being called Let Me Tell You, and. Um, and I decided, even though it has not for a very long time been my job to copy edit, um, with a couple of exceptions, I decided that I was going to do this. Uh, you know, I was going to do this myself because who who knows her voice better than I know her voice? It's a full missing moment. You yes to, to buy the flowers yourself. Exactly, exactly. And so first I, 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 I presented myself to, um, you know, to Lawrence and, uh, and Sarah on the phone as the person who was going to be handling their mother's work. Um, I'm sure I made promises about not doing anything that I intended in the moment to keep. Uh, but what was interesting when I got to work I mean, and some of the stuff, some of the stuff in the book was previously published. Some of the stuff in the book uh, were those red book, good housekeeping sort of stories and essays that had already been through the process. So I didn't really have much to add. But uh, a lot of it was stuff that, well, when I first got a glimpse of it uh, before we sent it off to be keyboarded into usable word files, I got a glimpse of Xeroxes of Shirley's famous uh, typescripts, um, famous in the sense of uh, she was known to type all in lowercase. Uh, mm-hmm. I, as I, I've always assumed that it was because in the rush of creativity and in an era when, of course, everybody was typing on manual typewriters, um, that it was easier to just keep typing really fast uh, than to keep reaching for the shift key. Um, but so that was my first glimpse of that, of, uh, of, of what I was going to be working on. And then, so we get it keyboarded and I'm working on the word files and, and I was trying to set boundaries, uh, for myself because it's one thing to be copy editing a living author who has the power to accept or decline any of your suggestions. And, and it gives you free reign to be a little bit, you know, aggressive because if the writer doesn't like it, the writer's just going to say no. But here, 
uh, in this case, even though, of course, the two adult children were going to be responding to my copy edit, the process was between me and her, and and she wasn't going to be able to respond. Yes. So I, I quickly decided that I would do whatever I felt like doing insofar as punctuation was concerned, uh, with great respect to her... Um, to her um, fascination with uh, semicolons. Uh, so I decided I could do whatever I wanted with the punctuation. But as far as the text was concerned, I was really going to try to do nothing at all. Um, you know, a word here or a word there, changing a particular noun to a pronoun or perhaps a vague pronoun to a noun, but otherwise keeping my hands to myself as much as I possibly could. And I found to my delight that I could hold to those rules because even in her very first draft, which is what most of this material was, although there was some evidence on some of these Xerox pages that, that Stanley had had her hands, had excuse me, that Stanley had had his hands uh, on the writing, um, she wrote really clean. She wrote really clean. She, she did not need a lot of help from me, I can tell you that. our first episode on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Thanks once again very much to Benjamin Dreyer, and thanks as always to Adam Baer for our theme music, and to LitHub for hosting us. And if you want to talk to us, you can reach us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod, or via email at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>